G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. The King's Banquets. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cur- uh, white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the, king, uh, according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bithsta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zetha, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure to all, toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Kashina, Shetha, Admetha, Tarshish, Mirs, Masina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who, sat, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are all in who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husband with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of all the queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty." If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, good morning again. It is uh, wonderful to be here. It's it's always nice uh, to be asked to speak at a new church, but it's even better when they invite you back, uh, seeing they know what they're in for. Uh, So let's pray, uh, and then let's jump in and have a look at this marvellous passage together. Gracious Father, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, we thank you for the way that you have preserved this passage for us throughout history. And we pray, Lord, that as we pay careful attention to what you've written, 
that we could hear what you would have us hear, learn what you would have us learn, and love your son all the more because of it. Uh, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, friends, as I mentioned, I uh, work with uni students, and on Thursday, just gone, I had a bunch of uni students come round to my house. We had a pool party. Uh, but I could tell that there was one young man that was there in particular who was just, uh, just a little off. Uh, it kind of took him a while, but eventually he came up to me and he said, look, David, could we, could we have a private conversation? And it was clear that he was quite uh, anxious. And so he, he took me aside and, and brought up the topic, uh, that most marvellous of male mysteries, uh, women. His basic question to me was, Dave, who should I date? Now, it's kind of fun as, you know, someone in their middle age looking back on a young man trying to figure out who he should uh, pursue. But for him, it was no laughing matter. It was quite a serious concern. Who is it that I should follow? Uh, or follow after, rather? And that there's really good reasons why every rom-com kind of follows this whole unfolding drama. Because when it comes to sort of pursuing the one, uh, you open yourself up to, to following your desires, but doing so without any real direction or ability to determine the outcome. You can chase someone, you can follow after someone, but you can't actually control how it all ends and so, of course, enter every good rom-com. But, of course, this conundrum is a little bit more difficult for the Christian, isn't it? Because for the, the Christian, that sort of light and funny question, who should I date, is just that little bit more awkward because we actually believe that this is a topic that God is intimately interested in and yet it's a topic that he has very little to say on. Who should I date? A Christian. There you go, date a Christian. That's about all you get. And so when he said to me, Dave, who should I date? Oh, I knew my Bible. I was going to hit him with a Christian and then going to leave him and just walk away. But, of course, that's not what he was after, was it? He wanted to know who, who should I follow? Who was the particular one that I should put my efforts into? And he was very earnest about the question. Now, what's the question that's dominating your life at the moment? Maybe it's not who should I date, but is it what job should I pursue? Or maybe which church you know, room am I meant to be in? Or which house should I buy? Or which holiday should I take? Or which health advice should I chase after? All of these questions are questions that at one level are beyond your control. You can't control the out outcome. But similarly, all of them are issues that God is largely silent on. They matter, but he's not going to tell you what the answer is. Now, I'm not saying that God won't tell you who the person is that you should marry. God, of course, can do whatever he wants. He could drop down now and let you know this is the one that you should pursue. That happened to a mate of mine. He was quite convinced that God told him who to marry. And the marriage lasted seven years. Even if God were to drop down before you and tell you this is the one that you should marry, this is the house you should buy, this is the health tips you should follow, that, of course, is no determination of a great life, is it? Through most of life, as people who think that the way we live matters, what we have is the promises of God made thousands of years ago and this thing called wisdom. And that's it. If you've ever wondered how you should live, what you should do, how you should live under the judgment of God, and you're trying to do that without any direct word from him, and I've never received a direct word from him, then the book of Esther is for you. Because this is the book that was written that does not mention God's name. This is the book that was written without God ever speaking. You will not read in the book of Esther, thus says the Lord. In fact, you won't even find anyone who prays to him. He is hidden and silent and removed. And if you've ever felt like that as one of the people who wants to feel God, then you're in really good company with most of the people who have lived without history who have never heard God speak. Promises in the past having to choose how to serve him in the present. That is the book of Esther. So let's jump in as we let hope arise. Now, important little comment for me to make before we jump in and have a look at Esther chapter 1, and that's just to outline the way that I am going to read the book, and I think it's really important as you jump into Esther from the beginning, and that's to have, and just see if you can do it for a moment, 
have Monty Python always in the background of your mind. Like, whenever Esther is read, I want you to imagine, you know, the search for the Holy Grail or the life of Brian or whatever it is, just watch one of them during the week, come back next week and just have those images in the back of your mind whenever the Bible is read. And I reckon you should do that because the very genre that we're about to read, I reckon, is the genre of satire and mockery. And it's really quite important to get your head around that because that, I reckon, is how God is going to influence us through the writings of his author. We're going to actually see people mocked and made fun of by God. And as we do, of course, we get to learn from that. And so here's my little outline to the way I reckon we're going to through. In Esther chapter 1, we're going to laugh and then we're going to learn and then we're going to love. And we're going to do that, I think, to try and make best use of the text. The way to read Esther 1, and I think the book in general, is to laugh along with the author at the foolishness and the stupidity of people who live in his world. So, uh, and I guess my second comment as we jump in is um, I don't really have too many original tricks when it comes to reading the Bible. I have the exact same outline for every Old Testament chapter that's history or narrative. I just follow this same outline where there's an introduction that sets the scene. There's then some sort of problem, some sort of dramatic moment where some sort of tension is escalated. There's then a solution to that tension and you want to take note of that. How are they going to overcome the problem? And then after the solution, after you see the answer to the problem, there's then the resolution. There's the new norm that this answer has brought forth. And then generally there's a nice little conclusion where everything's tied together at the end. And it's by taking note of these movements, I think, that we again get to see what the author would have us see. So without any further ado, let's jump in and begin our read of Esther. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Artaxerxes. Now you may have already noticed that I've pronounced that a little difficulty uh, differently from the Bible reader. She was probably right. Who really knows? Uh, that's the beauty of reading the Old Testament. But of course, the Artaxerxes that we're reading of here really importantly begins with a backward glance at Artaxerxes, or Xerxes is his name in Greek. Uh, our text, what we're about to read, it's not like the nightly news, it's not a blow-by-blow -blow description as it unfolds, but rather, and quite importantly, this is the reflection looking back at those days. This is, if you like, the considered view of heaven looking back on the events of this king, and he was, of course, quite a king. So here he is here. Uh, there he is. There's actually a picture of Artaxerxes that you can find from antiquities. Uh, that's taken out of the National Museum of uh, Iran, some rock art that you can go and see. Uh, and so we know from Greek historians like Herodotus and other guys uh, that Artaxerxes reigned from uh, 486 down to 465 BC. Uh, he began his reign when his father Darius was assassinated. And Darius is that king that you'll read about in a number of Old Testament uh, texts like Daniel and Haggai in those kind of places. Uh, what I love about Darius um, is that his uh, moment of fame came through a shock defeat to the Greek at the Battle of Marathona. So if, like me, you're a marathon runner, this is your moment. Darius's moment was in the Battle of Marathona, uh, where a shock defeat to the Greeks, and of course after this, sorry, this shock victory from the Greek point of view, uh, a scout ran from Marathona to Athens, announced the great news of the Greek victory only to drop dead from exhaustion. So every time you run a marathon, you really are just proving your own stupidity. But anyway, back to the verse. Back to verse 1. In the days of Artaxerxes, the Artaxerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, the Persian empire that Artaxerxes reigned over was indeed mammoth. So here's a picture of it here. Uh, in antiquity, it's known as the Archimedean Empire, and it includes Ethiopia, the Sudan, Egypt, Israel, Turkey, parts of Central and South Asia, and India. Today, we're literally talking billions of people. This is a vast empire. But here, I think, is where the mockery and the slander 
and the satire begins. Now, only the Bible will tell you that there's 127 provinces in this particular empire. If you go to any other historical source, and there are a few, you're going to hear a number that's only one-fifth that big. That is, in all likelihood, according to all other sources, there's probably only 20 or 30 provinces. Now, it could be that the Bible's the most accurate document that we have from history, and that's true. Nothing was recorded like the Bible. And so word for word, this is the most accurate historical document that we have. And yet it is weird that all the other documents disagree. It would be a little bit like if 100 years from now when I was you know, writing the history of this great and glorious church, I mentioned that it was found in Queensland, one of the 35 states of Australia. If I made a mistake like that, I'm either really bad at my job or I'm trying to make a point. You see, the Bible is really well written and it alerts you to the fact that it's a historical document writing back on the event and one of the opening things that it has to say is that there were heaps of provinces, 127, far more than there perhaps actually were. Why would you say something like that? Again, you could be bad at your job or perhaps you're making a point. See, a province, if you like, was actually an administrative area of land. And so whenever you read in the book of Daniel or in this book about a satrap, the satrap was the administrator who was in charge of a province. Just historically, that's how it works. What are we being alluded to from the beginning of this book? There is an armada of aristocrats surrounding this ruler. There is just a behemoth of bureaucracy. There are people everywhere helping this guy rule. There are just hundreds and hundreds. You're meant, again, think Monty Python. You're meant to think of this guy and he's just surrounded by all of these bureaucrats that are there to help him do his job. And when the King of Kings, which is in charge of one of the biggest historical empires that has ever been, is, well, he's in the citadel in Susa, he's in the capital, he is surrounded by all of these bureaucrats there to help him do his job. What's he spent his time doing? Well, in the reign, in those days, verse 3, in the third year of his reign, did you notice the build-up? In, 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 we're getting all of these statements. What's he do? Verse 3, well, he parties. That's what he does. Artaxerxes gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. Now, one of the other things we know about Artaxerxes is that he's a lot like his dad historically. His dad, Darius, tried to go into Europe, tried to conquer Greece, it didn't go so well for him, he lost a battle. It's actually the same with Artaxerxes. So I've got a photo up here of a famous naval battle that he was involved in. It's a naval battle that, again, he, uh, shock, wasn't expected to lose to the Greeks. And he lost that battle in about the sixth year of his reign. This is the third year of his reign. He's surrounded by aristocrats... And I think it's fair to assume that the people who read this after the event actually knew a little of this guy's history and knew that this was the build-up to his great, well, failure. What should he have been doing if he is about to try and do what his famous father failed to do before him? Perhaps he should have been preparing. But instead, he was partying. And if I can get technical for a moment, there are only three main clauses in what I'm calling the introduction. Three sentences or phrases that stand on their own that the whole rest of the introduction, all the other nine verses, simply just modify. And the three main clauses that you'll read in verses 1 to 9 are this. Artaxerxes gave a feast for all his officials and servants, verse 3. Verse 5, the king gave a feast lasting seven days. And then verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast. The ruler, preparing for his moment, armed with all of these bureaucrats to help him along the way. And what's he doing? Partying, partying, partying. Can you hear the opinion of heaven? Can you hear the mockery? Can you hear the slander? Of course it went wrong. What were you thinking? But of course, there is far more slander than just this, because in verse 3, we're told that all of his officials and all of his servants, perhaps that greatly inflated number uh, of satraps, they're all there. And what are they there to do? Well, verse 4, 
They're there for a party so that Artaxerxes can show off the riches of his royal glory and the slander of his pomp and greatness. Now, don't miss what's happening here. How do you think Artaxerxes explained what he was doing at the day? See, what I don't do every Sunday afternoon is tell my kids I'm heading for a sleep. What I tell them is I'm going for a prayer time. I say, I'm just going to go take a bit of time to myself. I'm going to close my eyes, going to chat with God. And they go, ah, you're heading off for a sleep again, aren't you, Dad? <laughs> Very rarely do I ever tell my wife that I'm just going out for breakfast with the mates. What are you doing tomorrow? I've got a work meeting. Starting early, getting on it. Who knows what Artaxerxes said he was doing? What's heaven's verdict of the way that he prepared for his great moment? Six months worth of partying where he stopped all of the natural leadership of the day from doing their job and just had a look at me moment, displaying the riches of his royal glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness. Now, because... Who knows, maybe because he did that for six months, the town was getting a little unruly. Maybe they wanted their turn, so you've got verse 5. Another great party, a party held there for all the people present in Zusa, uh, rather the citadel, both great and small. Everybody is invited to this one, not just the natural leadership. A feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, again, what sort of party is this? What sort of mindset should you have when you look back on this king of kings, as he was known at the day, uh, exercising dominion over his domain? Well, it's there in verse 8. There was actually a decree passed by a king. It seems to be the only decree in the book almost that he can uh, actually make of his own volition. The rest of the time he needs someone else to tell him what to do. But verse 8, it seems, was his idea, and the idea is to drink with no compulsion. Now, uh, a couple of years ago now, I was with some squash mates and they told me about this wine tasting event that we could go to. And it was a wine show where all the wines had been already graded and marked and you just got to go there afterwards and everything was open. And they gave you a book and the book just showed you all the scores that the judges had given to the wine and the Torquay and the muskets. And there was a room with hundreds of bottles in there. And so we all turned up, sort of dressed up, and we were given the book, and we went round, and we could just sample whatever we wanted. How do you reckon the night ended? Schoolies on the Gold Coast. How do you reckon it ended? Drink with no compulsion. And perhaps it's because of verse 8 that we then read verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the place, Uh, the palace, rather, that belonged to King Artaxerxes. You get a hint right from the beginning that this is not a good place for women to be. They'd much rather be on their own. They'd much rather be locked away inside. It's almost as if it's a little safer there. I mean, what sort of man would invite his uh, his wife to uh, drink as much as you can party? What on earth would uh, be in your mind if that's what you wanted to happen? But there we go, that's the introduction done. That's the backdrop to the whole book of Esther. It's a king who loves to party and it's a king that's got ample support, ample resources, and yet he's wasting them. I wonder what on earth can go wrong. Verse 10. On the seventh day, remember seventh day party? This is on the seventh day, so they've been at it for a while. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, literally in the Hebrew, it's glad with wine. Now, the Bible's not ignorant about alcohol. It's really difficult to find anywhere in the Bible where forgiveness isn't celebrated with wine. Uh, The Bible's not a book for wowsers, and yet, every single time you read in the Bible that phrase that one's heart was good or merry with wine, what either happens is they either make a dumb decision or their enemies use their drunken state against them. And you basically, that's just the storyline of Esther. A guy who loves a drink, who either then makes dumb decisions, or his enemies use his drinking against him. After seven days of hitting the bottle, what does the king do? Well, he commands his eunuchs. Now, eunuchs are fairly unfortunate men. They're men who have been castrated so that they can have single-minded devotion to whatever the task is that they're given. And, look, this doesn't work in the original, but it's such a play on words. The name of the last eunuch is Carcass. 
Isn't that kind of sad? Anyway, nothing to do with the text. Let's just jump back in. Uh, He commands these seven eunuchs with the verdict, uh, go and bring before me, verse 11, the queen, and to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Now, why would a husband invite his wife to a binge drinking session? Well, verse 11, in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, one of the things we have in the antiquity is a Hebrew commentary of the Old Testament. Uh, it's called the Midrash or the Midrashim. And the way the Midrashim, you know, so do the old readers of the Old Testament interpret this verse, is basically that the king was telling the queen to come and parade before them naked, that she would stand there with only the crown on to show how lucky the king was. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know if that was the case or not, if the invitation was for her to parade naked. But either way, it's somewhat of a peep show, isn't it? This is not an honourable request. And so you see the only honourable action, I think, in the whole chapter, verse 12, where the queen refuses to come to the king's command as delivered by the eunuchs. But, of course, if someone's been drinking and they've got unlimited power and you refuse them, it's kind of not hard to see where this is going to go, isn't it? And of course, at this, we keep reading verse 12, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Men, whenever you're called out for mistreating women, by and large it goes two ways. There's the flight or the fight response. Like whenever you look at a woman the way you shouldn't, whenever you treat her as a thing, as an object, not a person, whether you're doing that in the darkness of your own room and you're looking at women and treating them as things, or whether you're doing that at the beach, or whether you're doing it in public, it, it's always shameful. But the thing is, when you're caught, it'll be fight or flight, depending on your ego. You'll either run, no, no, that's not what I was doing, or you'll fight. And that's what we see here. The king's anger burned within him. How dare she? It's amazing, men, what you can convince yourself of when it comes to women. How dare she not flaunt herself in a room full of drunk men? How dare she? And yet his anger burned. It is amazing the way men are willing to sacrifice women on the altar of their own ego. It's almost as if we will stop at nothing. It's quite an ugly scene, I think, because it's realistic. If that's you men, and you are sacrificing women at the altar of your own ego, if you're making them perform for you so that you can feel good about yourself, it's an area to get help about. But it's not an area to do this in. The king became angry, and his anger burned within him. Now, at this point... Here's the problem of the text. What is the king going to do? The queen, quite rightly, has refused him. She's acted with honour. She's acted with dignity. She's acted like a royal. What's the king going to do in response? It's actually quite surprising when you think about it. In verse 13, what he does is he turns around to his advisers, wise men who knew the times. You can see even in his anger and even in his fury, he can't figure out what to do on his own. And one of the themes we're going to find again and again in the book of Esther is the way that the book, again, think Monty Python, just keeps mocking Persian law. This guy just can't figure out what to do on his own. And so what he's going to do is going to bring on all these wise ones, these men who know the times, know what they should do, but their answer is ridiculous. As we go through it, see if you can find the joke of heaven as it looks back on what the king does here and see if you can work out the pun in terms of what it is that the lawmakers then uh, try to encourage the king to do. But that's the question. This has now become a matter of law. The king can't figure it out on his own. He's impotent when it comes to his own decision-making. A couple of drinks might do that to you. Verse 15, the question is, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti. You have a leadership vacuum. You have, well, some supposed wise men being called in. And what follows, 
Uh, and if you're young here, this is really a good one to listen to. What follows is a great lesson on the art of manipulation. It really is quite clever. So today, if you're here and you've got work on Monday and you've got to try and get the boss to see things your way, or if you're a kid and the old man won't lend you the car keys, this is just worth taking note of. This is really quite beautiful. Uh, step one, when it comes to manipulation, what you've got to do, the key is, you've got to find their vulnerability, turn it into a fear, and then show them how only you or your product are the way forward. Okay? You've got to find the vulnerability, turn it into fear, and then show them how only you or your product is the way forward. So let's watch just an absolute artist in action as we keep reading. Uh, the king asked the question, what should we do? Here's the answer. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all, notice the all, all the provinces of King Artaxerxes. Can you see the way that a vulnerability is being turned into fear? What's the vulnerability? You've got the king of kings and the commander of the whole empire that can't even control his wife. What's the fear? What if everyone finds out? And I just flaunt my weakness in front of everyone, I gave a command and it wasn't even obeyed at home and yet I'm going to try and lead soldiers and nations and men off into battle. I'm going to tell them to charge and they have to listen and they have to obey and I can't even get my queen to obey. This wrong hasn't just been done against you, it's been done against the whole empire. Can you hear the hint? Everyone's going to find out about this. This is going to become common knowledge. You could have kept this quiet but this is going to get out. It's going to escalate. So what should you do? Well, first of all, you should see the implications. Verse 17, for the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Despise is the word here. You, king, are going to be despised everywhere because word of this is going to get out and everyone's going to find out about that. Now, remember that. Everyone's going to find out about what the queen did. So listen now to their solution because they've found the vulnerability, they've turned it into a fear, but by saying that you need us, they've now put themselves in a position where they need to be listened to. A little bit like I'm told if you go to a shop and a woman puts a dress on and says, how do I look in this dress? And the shop attendant says, oh yeah, that hides your hips really well. Or a little bit like a man when he goes to Bunnings and says, I'm thinking of attacking this job, will this tool help me? Oh yes. That tool, that tool will make any job look simple. See the vulnerability fear thing that sort of kicks in there? Oh, yeah, that's a tough job. It's well beyond you. You need a tool that's really going to make it easier for you. You need to be covered up by that dress. You need me, king, to actually give you this word. And yet, here is the verdict of heaven. Notice the ridiculous nature of the advice that is given by the wise ones of Persia. It is self-defeating. Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti is to never again come before the king and let the king give her royal position to another that is better than she. Now, from a narrative point of view, we've got the problem. What are we going to do about Vashti? There's the solution. Just get rid of her. Can you see the stupidity, though? Imagine for a moment you're Queen Vashti. The king has called you in before him and you're like, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm going to go before him. Do you know how you're punished? You'll never have to go before him again. <laughs> I don't think this upset the queen all that much. But notice too, what was the fear of the king? What you've done, king, has actually been done against everybody and everybody's going to find out about this. So what is now enshrined in law the failure of the king. But not just the failure of the king, the failure of every man who now has to try and emulate the king. Verse 20, so when all decrees are made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, uh, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. The king couldn't get his wife to do what he told her. And so he then universalises the command, every wife has to do what I wasn't able to do, even though I'm the king of kings, which is get your wife to do whatever you want. Can you see the mockery? 
that heaven is making of Persian law. These laws are ridiculous. And the king is being manipulated. There is irony and satire all through this chapter. And so, of course, despite the inability of any man to do what the king himself couldn't do, our chapter then ends with every man being given the mandate, you are the master of your own domain, and every woman you should do as you are told. And with that, the chapter ends. And although the the chapter ends... And we can see, well, the great chaos that is women who think for themselves being subdued by Persian law. You're left kind of scratching and wondering, what on earth do we do with this chapter? And here's where we go from laughing to learning. To learning from the influence of heaven. And the reason I want you to have Monty Python in the back of your mind, the reason I want you to see the ridiculousness of the laws that the Persians came up with, is I want you to see the opinion of heaven. Because when we read God's word, we're reading the word that was inspired by God. And so what we're then able to do as we read back through these historical chapters is when we pick up on the hints of the author, we're picking up on the hints of heaven. We're actually getting God's opinion on the events. And what was God's opinion of this king? A partier who had a disgraceful treatment of women and so therefore was weak and manipulated. I mean, this guy went on to do some impressive things, but that's the verdict of heaven. Mistreating women, vulnerable to manipulation, a fool in the eyes of heaven. What's the warning? It's one thing to worry about how your mates see you. It's a whole other thing to worry about how heaven sees you. Because heaven will look back on your days. And heaven will give the verdict of your life. And you can call your life whatever you want. A life spent lived in the honour of the people around me, serving my family, a master, a pillar in the community. But God's not going to worry about the titles. He's actually going to look at what it is. And if it's just a bunch of parties that are all aimed at glorifying yourself then you will be mocked for all eternity as a fool, as someone who missed what life was all about. So what's our job as readers of the text? I think we're to pick up on the attitudes of the author because through the attitudes of the author, we get the attitudes of heaven. And the attitude of heaven is this and not a good way to live. In fact, the attitude of heaven is, don't be stupid. (laughs) Don't be stupid when it comes on how to live. And particularly, one of the lessons of this chapter has got to be, don't be stupid when it comes to alcohol. Now, as I've already mentioned, the Bible actually loves a drink in the sense it's really hard to find anywhere where you're forgiven and you don't then celebrate with wine. But, well, the Bible has more than just that to say. Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler, says Proverbs 20. And by and large, in a room this big, there'll be men and women here who aren't overly proud about the number of standard drinks they consume in a week. Do you know the Australian guidelines on that score? Ten standards a week, that's what they recommend. That's not a Christian recommendation, that's just what we recognise as wisdom today. No more than ten standard drinks, that's about seven full-strength beers or roughly just under a bottle of half a wine. You're allowed to drink more than that. But if you are, remember the fight-or-flight thing? Why not mention it to someone? If you are drinking more than that, and, you know, that's cool, you're allowed to do that if you want to, but why not mention it to someone? Mention it to someone and just see what their reaction is, someone who cares for you and loves you. Because it could be that what you're doing is fine, or it could be that actually there's a little bit of an issue there that heaven tells you you would do well to pay attention to. Alcohol's great for a celebration, but don't let it rule your life. Otherwise, you'll end up like Darius, who was judged a fool. Something else just uh, when it's uh, t- worth taking note from this chapter is don't be dumb, again, when it comes to the whole area of laws. Now, laws are a great thing. I'm not against laws. There's lots of laws in this book. But laws don't change people. 
Now, you guys are part of a, a church plant organisation. As far as I know, there's only sort of 10 City on a Hill kind of churches. That's cool. I went to an FIEC church once, uh, and back in the day, there was only about 10 churches uh, for us as well. One of the spin-offs of going to that kind of church is you're going to a church that doesn't have many laws yet. That just means you've got a couple of untested areas of life. You're still sort of working a lot of these things out, and there'll be less things written down. Two warnings. One... That actually doesn't protect you. Laws are good. It's just recognised areas of wisdom. And so you may well find you've got to write a few things down over time and talk about them. But something I bet you know is that laws, which the Bible is kind of for, don't change hearts. And so the Persians were great with laws and had great advisors, but they actually don't make you a better person. So don't be anti-rules, but actually be pro-people. And that's worth thinking if you're going to have laws, rules, because you're a parent or an adult or run a group like that. Yeah, yeah, be pro-laws, be pro-rules, but they don't change hearts. So how are you going to be preparing your kids and your teenagers and your young adults to be actually have wise hearts when the rules run out? That's one of the lessons of the book here. But the big one, as we laugh and then learn, I think is really just to... To love. What's the verdict of heaven on Esther chapter 1? The verdict of heaven is that only a fool uses women for his own pleasure. See, what was the king's big problem? Well, he threw that banquet, as I alluded to earlier, to showcase the grandeur of his own pomp and ceremony. What was his big vice? He just loved himself. He was full of himself and he filled the people around them with wine so that they could be full of him too. He just wanted to showcase all his grandeur, showcase all the stuff that he had. Now, I imagine he had a lot. He was the king of kings in charge of those 127 provinces. But remember the introduction. This is the third year of his reign. This is the thing about pride and arrogance and pomp and ceremony. It's always undeserved. It's, it's, it's never accurate. The person who loves themselves, is full of themselves, is actually just someone who denies reality. He didn't earn all that. His dad earned all of that and he inherited it. You know, the same is true of your bank account. See, if you work hard for your bank account, one of the lies you can believe is that, therefore, the money should belong to you. But I guarantee, go over to Africa and put in the same amount of effort with the same amount of resources, you're not going to have the same bank account. One of the great lies of proud people is that everything that they have, they have earned. And the problem with pride and the problem of thinking about all your stuff is yours is it's a denial of reality. And whenever you deny reality, people pay for it. The verdict of heaven is how much better would this kingdom have been if the king was humble? Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. He's just gone through, learned a couple of lessons uh, through them for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. This is the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament telling you not to take pride in one man over another. That is, if he was to walk in here today, he didn't want a bigger fuss being made about him, the author of half the New Testament, than, well, the biggest nobody you can picture. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? What's the big take-home lesson from Ephesians chapter 1? It's to remember that everything, including your resources, including your intellect, including your capability, including anything you bring into the room is a gift from God. Isn't that just liberating? You chat to someone who's not as capable, not as able, not as rich, not as worthy. 
you're talking with your equal brother or sister, you're not going to get any better seat than them in heaven. You're not going to be any richer than them. That's your destiny. You're not going to be any cleverer. You're not going to have any more abilities. You get to see with heaven's eyes now everything you're good at has been given to you. So of course you can share and of course you can be generous. You can be like Jesus. Philippians 2, I love Philippians 2. It talks about if you have any encouragement from Christ, if you have any enthusiasm from love, you have any fellowship with the Spirit, Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 5, then make your attitude the same of Christ Jesus. What was his attitude? Though being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's his station. But he put all of that aside, taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in servant human form. What did he do? He lowered himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus, the great leader, do? He gave far more than he got. What's heaven's verdict of a great leader? Someone who gives far more than they receive. And you will see that most clearly in the way you treat women. If this is a church worth following, then this is a church that will have figured out how to honour women. And if this is the church that doesn't have greatness figured out, if you haven't figured out how to honour Jesus, do you know who's going to pay for it most acutely? Women. I work at university where the stats are something like two or three out of every five females that goes through this institution suffer some form of abuse. Two or three out of every five. Now, I've got a teenage daughter. And do you know what the big issue at university is at the moment? The issue of consent. The issue of consent. Do you know how hard it is for university professors to define sexual consent between two adults. If you actually open up any university book that's given out to you at O-Week and it just tells you how to live well, go right to the middle, I don't really care which uni it's at, and right in the middle there'll be a page that's all about consent, all about what you should do as a woman once you're abused and how you can seek help. We can't even, as a society, point out what consent looks like. Because the problem is men are very good at pressuring women. So even when they say yes, is that really what they mean? It's actually a super difficult issue. But this is one church where I think we should take the foreground on. We should be modelling to our society what it looks like to value and cherish women. And women, can you see the power that's inherent in Esther chapter 1? The queen changed the laws of the whole known world, well, except for Europe, but the rest. And how did she do that? Not by taking power, not by becoming the king, not by becoming a man, but just by being genuine. Now, I've listened to some really powerful men throughout my life, wonderful Bible college lecturers. None of them beat my mum. No title, no position. But she has done more to shape me and craft me and teach me than any man I've come across. Women, just by the power of being a woman, not trying to take a man's role, but actually just by being a woman, you have the power to change whole civilizations. That's what this chapter is getting at. And what is one of the most valuable messages right now I reckon a woman can give to the rest of her society? Just what makes you valuable Again, I work with university students next week's O-Week. We're going to have a whole fresh crop of first years showing up in university. You know how you spot a first-year girl? It's the amount of makeup she wears. Because she knows she's on display. No one has to tell her. She knows she's being judged. No one has to point that out. She knows if she looks a certain way at a university at a place where it's all about your intellect and your ability when it comes to passing exams. She knows when she turns up to that world, the thing that's going to matter most is the way she looks. When you go to the beach, north or south of here, your beach is rubbish, but, you know, you go north or south of here, <laughs> what are you going to see women voluntarily wearing on the beach? Something Queen Vashti refused to wear. 
Now, why are they doing that? Because they've been told the lie. That's where your value is. That's where your worth is. That's how you get attention. That's how you get ahead. Vashti's name is celebrated today for her modesty. I want this to be a place where men know how to treat women and I want it to be a place where women know how to inspire women to be women. Show them the beauty and power of modesty. You don't gain by giving it away is the verdict of heaven. So as you keep going in the book of Esther, I want you to keep laughing. (laughs) Keep laughing at these people. I want you to keep learning, keep looking for the opinions of heaven. But I want you to keep loving. What would this chapter have looked like if the king was less like himself and more like Jesus? If he was humble, if he gave, if he served. You've got to finish Esther chapter 1 by just marvelling at the beauty of Jesus. The true king of kings and lord of lords who gave up everything for us so that we can spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, what would I have done if I was King Artaxerxes? The truth is, I guess it wouldn't have been all that different. Lord God, please don't let the verdict of heaven, as you look back on my life when it's completed, be one of mockery and derision. Lord, thank you so much because of Jesus I get to see true power, true strength, true masculinity, true leadership, true love. Lord God, please don't let this be a church where men glorify themselves through their own greatness. Please don't let this be a place where women are mistreated and marginalised. But we pray that this church will be a place where they genuinely do let hope rise. Gracious Father, thank you that although you are never named or mentioned in this book, we can see your fingers everywhere. Thank you for the way that even through the foibles of great leaders, you are bringing about the security and restoration of your people. And we, of course, thank you that we can see this from the vantage point of the cross, where you worked out everything for the good of your plans. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.